Understanding mental health struggles can be tough. That's why I created Therapy in a Nutshell to help make complicated therapeutic topics easy to understand and learn. I'm Emma McAdam, a licensed marriage and family therapist, and this is the Therapy in a Nutshell podcast. These episodes don't replace the need for mental health professionals or the advice given by doctors, but they provide options, resources, and skills that can help you in your journey to better your own mental health or help those around you who may be struggling. If you want to find more resources or if you want to learn about courses I offer on specific mental health topics, please stop by my website at therapyinanutshell.com. Now, let's jump into this week's skill. Why are some people much more anxious than others? And what causes anxiety disorders? What makes some people feel anxious when they're actually safe? Well, the cause of an anxiety disorder is actually quite complicated. It's not a disease with a single origin. There are a lot of factors that go into play. So in this video, we're gonna talk about how the biopsychosocial model applies to understanding anxiety. We've already talked about the psychology behind anxiety, but there are some biological factors and even social factors that impact anxiety. So let's start with biology. So first, the stuff you're born with. Anxiety disorders run in families. Heritability estimates show that with generalized anxiety disorder, genes play a contributing factor around 25 to 35% of the time. But what does that mean, right? There isn't a single gene or set of genes associated with anxiety disorders. It's connected to a lot of physical differences. And we'll go into that a little bit, but the one thing to know is that genes can get turned on or off based on life experiences. So a traumatic childhood, for example, might be more likely to turn on physical changes that show up with anxiety disorders. And again, biology, psychology, and our environment all interplay in this really interesting way. Okay, next, brain structure. So this is the obvious physical difference. Uh, for people with anxiety disorders, there's often an increased blood flow in the amygdala. So this is the area associated with fear. This is like the smoke alarm of the brain. And the amygdala is sometimes larger than that of people without anxiety. Uh, researchers have also found higher ratios of gray matter to white matter. And another study of panic disorder showed that there was decreased metabolism in the brain and decreased blood flow between the two sides of the brain. There's also some indication that the part of the brain responsible for internal monitoring, the insula, might be more active in people with anxiety. So this is the part of your brain that scans your body for how you're feeling, for, for signs of pain or signs of anxiety. So someone who's highly sensitive and highly attuned with their body's signals may have a deep sense of intuition or a powerful sense of empathy or a deep ability to be aware of their emotions around art or music. But if they have a fear-based reaction to their internal signals, that can make them very sensitive to any physical symptoms of anxiety and develop a kind of an unhealthy avoidance of these sensations. This biological predisposition towards anxiety is not usually disordered. Anxiety serves a function and our society needs more sensitive people and less sensitive people in order to function well. So this is called neurodiversity. You know, we need slightly anxious caregivers who keep the toddlers away from cliffs and really unanxious warriors to protect the village. Moving on, there's some chemical differences too. And it's not just as simple as low serotonin like people have commonly believed. 
Um, an overactive adrenal gland, for example, can make physical symptoms of anxiety more intense. Um, hyper or hypothyroid can also cause anxiety symptoms. And then other physical conditions can increase or decrease one's resilience to stress. Um, and some of these are things you're born with, like your ability to sleep well, your ability to absorb nutrients, but then also some of that's choices, right? Your decision to prioritize sleep or nutrition. So these are physical factors that contribute to anxiety, and some of them we can change and some of them we can't. Uh, physical illnesses can decrease resilience. So for example, if you get cancer, that's gonna, you know, decrease your emotional reserves um, and conditions like inflammation or allergies. Researchers have found evidence of biological changes in people with anxiety, but it's like a chicken and an egg type problem, right? Brain changes can contribute to anxiety, but anxiety also contributes to brain changes. Your physical brain is built to adapt to how you think. It adapts to your experiences, and this is called neuroplasticity. So for example, if you constantly catastrophize, your body will probably have more adrenaline and more cortisol flowing through it. And if you have calmer thinking, you'll have less, right? And research shows that when anxiety is treated with CBT and changing how you think, the amygdala can actually decrease in size. There was a cool study out of Norway where they took people with social anxiety, they scanned their brains, they found that their amygdala was kind of larger than average. Then they did eight weeks of therapy over the internet, just standard CBT, scanned their brains again, and their amygdala had decreased in size. You can physically change your brain by how you think. So that takes us to kind of the psychological aspect of anxiety. Your brain is wired to learn. It adapts physically and psychologically to our experiences and how we think about our experiences. So if you're attacked by a dog as a child, your brain wires you to be more alert to dogs. It's gonna build more physical wiring and structures around dog anxiety. And that's gonna help you quickly fire off an anxiety response about dogs to prevent you from interacting with them. Your, your brain develops this emotional memory to keep you safe. But sometimes it overdoes it a little bit and you end up being hypervigilant all the time, right? And, and remember, anxiety isn't as much about actual danger as it is about perceived danger. The thoughts we have of danger trigger a real physiological response in our body. So if we think, oh, I'll never succeed or everyone must be making fun of me, I must avoid everything that makes me anxious, that's gonna keep us anxious versus thinking, I'm gonna keep trying and learning, I'll probably be able to succeed, but even if I don't, it's worth trying. Um, or you think, oh, I can allow myself to feel emotions, including anxiety, I can, but I can still choose my actions. So this is like a much more resilient way of thinking. And thinking that way helps us regulate our nervous system and rewires our brain to be less anxious. Our brains are also wired to learn on a deep level through observing others, right? It makes sense that our brain would wanna learn from watching instead of having to experience every bad thing first. So if you have a parent, for example, who is terrified of dogs, you're more likely to develop a fear of dogs. And if you see someone fall off a cliff and get injured, you'll be more likely to develop a fear of heights. This is a social aspect of anxiety. Again, this is the brain's built-in self-preservation. But your brain's ability to learn this stuff goes both ways. Experiences can teach you to decrease anxiety too. So if you get a friend who has a dog and that friend pets that dog every day and interacts with that dog every day and you just watch them do that, eventually your brain will learn, see, dogs can be safe after all. And that fear will decrease. 
So our family and our societal culture can directly impact our relationship with anxiety. Here's one more thing, right? We sometimes feel helpless when we believe that past trauma has made us anxious. And while trauma and our experiences can be the situation that initiates our anxiety, our anxiety in the present moment is determined by our thoughts and perceptions and behaviors in the present moment. We're gonna talk about this a ton throughout this course, so bear with me here. But there is something you are doing that is making your anxiety hang around in the present moment. What maintains anxiety are the messages you send to your brain about safety and danger. Now, a lot of people think that the reason they're anxious is because of an experience they had, but the maintaining causes of anxiety are the maladaptive strategies we built around our anxiety. Basically, how we cope with anxiety keeps us anxious. I'll give you a quick example. Let's say that when you were in middle school, you blurted out something in class and everyone laughed at you and you felt ashamed and embarrassed. Now, to prevent that from ever happening again, you constantly worry about every social situation. You constantly ruminate on how you handle social situations, all in an attempt to prevent yourself from ever doing something embarrassing again because you didn't know how to tolerate that emotion of embarrassment. You didn't know what to do with that emotion, so all you can think is like, I need to never feel this, right? But each time you worry, you create the perception of danger in your mind, which triggers the anxiety response. Each time you ruminate about what you said, you create the perception of danger in your mind. You actively feed your social anxiety through your attempts to avoid it. Now, in this course, you're going to learn how to replace the things that are keeping you anxious with actions that will help you be more confident. Okay, so that's the biopsychosocial model. Let's play with this for a minute, right? Let's just do some thought experiments. Let's say we've got twins with the exact same genes and they were raised in the same home environment. And let's say this home environment is moderately abusive. One may develop PTSD and the other may not. What's the difference? One, let's just say one got psychological support as an adult to change how they thought about themselves. They stopped blaming themselves for the abuse and thereby they were able to develop healthy relationships in the future. While the other continued to shame herself, continued to believe that she wasn't worthy of love. And that led her to keep dating jerkwad guys who continued to abuse her. So without support, her thoughts and her actions maintained her trauma. Now, I know this is an oversimplification. Um, there's probably a hundred factors that contribute to each of these twins, right? But we're just looking at a few small pieces because when we break a problem down into small pieces, many of the pieces are treatable. Okay, let's change it up. Two siblings with different genes, same family, same psychological support, but one sibling has a more sensitive temperament, a mutation in the MTHFR gene that makes it hard to metabolize folate. So they're tired all the time. They don't have energy to really face up the challenges of life. And let's say this person also has an undiagnosed milk allergy, which increases chronic inflammation, makes her feel sick and tired all the time. So the one without the milk allergy, when there's a challenge or a struggle or, you know, they get dumped by their boyfriend, right? They're able to kind of rise above it. They've got the energy and the physical resources to like get back up again and try again. 
where the one who feels sick all the time gets overwhelmed. They just don't have the energy to hang out with friends who kind of lift them up. They stay home more, gradually develop depression, right? So same social environment, different genes, same resources, two different outcomes. Okay, let's talk about twins who both have the MTHFR gene, but they were separated at birth, right? They both have access to psychological support. They both go to these like kind of upper middle class families. They both have been taught and utilized positive thinking and healthy coping skills. Um, one of them grows up in a perfectionist, high achieving, stressful home. And the other grows up in a super chill, supportive hippie home. One develops anxiety, the other doesn't. But the one who developed it from, who developed anxiety, she learned it from her environment. She learned that she had to be perfect. She learned that messing up was terrible. And if you learn it, you can unlearn it, right? The anxiety is perpetuated by continuing to believe that she has to be perfect. And when she chooses to believe something more helpful, then that anxiety can be treatable, right? Uh, you can also treat the folate deficiency. You can also avoid milk and all of a sudden life doesn't feel so overwhelming. We can break these problems down into tiny pieces and treat them, right? In all those other scenarios, you can treat the trauma, you can repair your nervous system, you can unlearn the faulty thinking, and you can learn to love yourself. There's a gazillion different ways to imagine how all of these different factors contribute to mental health. But here's the super important thing. When we see mental health as having many causes, when we use this biopsychosocial approach, it gives us tons of options to improve our mental health. So here's the bottom line. When it comes to biological predispositions, most of the time, no one's gonna test you for them. No one's gonna scan your brain and be like, oh yeah, your amygdala is bigger than everyone else's, right? They can test for some of these nutrient deficiencies and run some other physical tests, but usually no one is going to tell you what is specifically causing your anxiety? We just don't have tests that are that detailed and accurate. We aren't able to tell you how much of it is genetic or psychological. So what's the takeaway? Be gentle with yourself. Practice some self-compassion around your anxiety instead of beating yourself up with it, right? Maybe you do have some predisposing biological factors. Can you develop a good relationship with your own unique traits instead of being ashamed of them, right? And of course, stay open, keep a growth mindset. There's all these different factors, which means there's probably something you don't know yet that can help you with your anxiety. In the next video, we're gonna talk about the amazing gifts that highly sensitive people have and what they bring to our society. And then accept what you can't change, change what you can. There's a very good chance that you'll be able to decrease your anxiety, maybe even drastically. And there's a very good chance that you are among the 95% of people who experience some anxiety on a regular basis. This is normal and can be healthy, right? You can learn to relate to that anxiety and to think of that anxiety in a healthy way so that it no longer bothers you and it's no longer disordered. We all have this spectrum of functioning within our biological predispositions and we can choose to be on the healthy end of that. Okay, I hope this is helpful. Thank you for watching. If you want to learn more, check out my 30-day course on um, working through anxiety and uh, the links in the description. Thanks for watching and take care. I hope you enjoyed this episode and found something you can add to your daily routine that makes your life just a little bit better. If you want to learn more about topics like how to process tough emotions, how to change your brain, how to build better relationships, or support someone you know with a mental illness, then check out my classes at therapyinanutshell.com. 
And if you feel like these podcasts have been a benefit to you, please leave a rating so others can more easily find this content. Thank you so much and have a great day.